Lindsay are dangerously eclectic. Welcome back to Dangerously Eclectic. Season 2, our special ode to High Fidelity, where we're basically just doing some top five lists. And where you can get your patchouli stink out of our store. Well, I mean, maybe. Uh, I'm Benjamin Lindsay. You can find me on the Twitter machines at Ben Dangerously. With me is Alan Thomas L., as he prefers to be called, and you can find him at Eclectic Heretic. How are you doing tonight, L? Uh, not too badly. This was, uh, we're doing books tonight for those who haven't heard previous episodes. Um, and if you didn't hear the first season, my master's is literature. I've read like a fiend all my life. This was really, really hard for me. <laughs> I've uh, I resisted the urge to throw series in with one ex- with one exception, which I think is justifiable and we can debate that when we get there. You know, this I expected this to be hard too, just because even though I did not study literature, um, I have read pretty much constantly since I could read. And I, I thought that this would be very difficult. But as I got to thinking about it, my top five books have been the same since I graduated from university. So, uh, <laughs> Which time with what degree? <laughs> well, the first time. So, okay. I mean, which still wasn't all that long ago, really. But, I mean, uh, for five years, they, they've essentially been consistent. Okay. All right. Well, um, I know we've traditionally done some honorable mentions at the start do you want to throw any out or do you have any i've got a couple that i would like to mention that i think are foundational but i don't consider in my top five books and it will come as no surprise to you that these are all going to be fiction titles um (laughs) but you know it does not um dracula uh, as i said it's the one book that i go back and read every year and it's probably the greatest selling fantasy or fiction novel aside from the bible out there um i have a disagreement with that i think but we'll have to look up numbers okay well i mean that that was just going off the top of my head um then there's also and also a way to throw some shade at the bible but this is neither here nor there um well no it's number one i was talking about dracula (laughs) well i know you were but i was i was talking about calling it a fantasy or fiction piece um what else? David Edding's um, series, The Diamond Throne, The Ruby Knight, The Sapphire Rose. That was really good. Um, Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who kind of started all that fantasy stuff off. All of those are, are very good and have molded me into who I was as a young man. Um, I'm not really a young man anymore, so I don't really know how important they are to me. Most of them I wouldn't read again, so there's that. But, I mean, they were – I loved those books, and they meant a lot to me in my youth. Yeah, um, I'll I'll leave one of those out because it's the one series that I could not resist putting into mine. Um, Some of the other series that I desperately wanted to include and yet just couldn't justify are the Sandman series of comics by Neil Gaiman. Um, absolutely, with the exception of one graphic novel you will find in my top five, my favorite uh, comic series of all time. Uh, 
really, really wanted to throw Ursula Kaligan's Wizard of Earthsea series in there. Um, Roger Zelazny's Amber series. Uh, very tempted, honestly, because I think he's one of the most underrated short story authors of our time to throw in the Louis L'Amour Complete Western Short Stories volume. Um, yeah. I really, as a short story writer, now not a novelist, but as a short story writer, I think he's insanely underrated. Um, you know, there's, uh, honestly, the Bible makes it in almost to my top five. Now... To be fair, we're talking King James Version Norton Critical Edition, which includes all the apocrypha, the commentary from contemporary to the writing to all the way to the modern day. Uh, you know, but it's had such a gigantic shape on Western culture. Right. Yeah, that... I, I would say that that one has the most outsized shape, not only our culture. You You cannot understand the current moment in American society without understanding evangelicalism. And to do that, you have to have some understanding of the Bible. Well, and, and even I would go so far as to argue all the way back to the Catholic Protestant split. I mean, you, you really can't see the shape of history in Western culture since at least the middle ages without a relative understanding of Christianity. You, you can't, um, Toss in a couple more of the Ender series by Orson Scott Card, the Gunslinger series, Stephen King. And this one hurt me like hell to leave out of my top five, the omnibus edition of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, I'm actually surprised it didn't make it. Oh, God, you have no idea how close that one was. <laughs> I wrestled with that one for a long time. I've got some other ones I'll bring up uh, that are honorable mentions, Train Spotting, American Psycho, Fight Club. But but that's the those are the series that, and oh, God, honestly, Ben, Sandman and and The Hitchhiker's Guide, those were the two that, I just couldn't justify Sandman is 10 frickin' graphic novels. <laughs> you know, the Hitchhiker's right. Guide to the Galaxy Omnibus is five books. Hell, the Amber, the Great Book of Amber's 10. I just, like, I'm okay with stretching our rules, but those to me seem to shade excessive. <laughs> For real. I would have to agree with that. I mean, I. The graphic novels, I would actually not consider that much of a stretching, honestly, because unless it's like a, a series of X-Men or some ongoing series, but something like that that was always meant to be a contained story, and because it's in a graphic novel format, because if you distilled that down, it would still be more than one book, but it wouldn't be ten books or anything. No, you're probably looking at a trilogy or something along those lines, but I still I look at my top five, and I, I can't. I don't see one of them I can change. I honestly don't. So that's that's what I've got. Um, last but not least, I'll throw out one more honorable honorable mention just because I know how much you love noir, and that's The Big Sleep, which yeah. is probably Raymond Chandler's best book, in my opinion. And other than maybe something Dashiell Hammett did, whose title escapes me, probably the best noir novel of all time. Um, we might have to, that discussion later. Okay. Maybe not. We'll see. All right. Um, 
with all that said, I feel it's only proper for you to go first. Oh, jeez. All right. Um, I'm going to go back to some literary roots, and I'm going to include one I'm 99% positive you will not have. Actually, we can go ivory soap pure on that one for those old enough to get the reference. I'm 99.44% sure you don't have it. And that's the Odyssey. You would be um, correct. I do not have that. I. It's not only the basis, at least in Western traditions, if you throw Scandinavian traditions in, you've got Loki, but in the Western, in the Western civilization sense that it's been taught, thankfully not now, but in the last 20 years or so, that is, the Iliad and the Odyssey are the basis for, Homer is the basis for Western literature, uh, really bar none. Just like the Epic of Gilgamesh is where you're going to start, you know, if you're going to study world lit. Um, but the Odyssey, I've always had a fascination with trickster heroes in any case. Um, and the Odyssey just, the idea that one person can endure all of that and still and still keep a goal in mind and get home and accomplish it. It is mind blowing to me. And not just that, the storytelling's fantastic in the Odyssey. The tricks are great. The, I, I just, it really is. Now it depends on the translation you get a hold of, and I'm not going to recommend one cause I have a few favorites and, there's no point in going into it for most people, but, but, but the Odyssey really is up there. And if you look at all the works it's inspired, you know, that alone gives it so much weight in my mind because there are so many stories Cold mountains, the Odyssey, you, you know, I, there's just, and that's the only one that comes to mind at the moment, but there are so many stories where, well, of what was the recent DiCaprio one? And I know it's based on a true story, but uh, oh, it's loosely based. It actually has more to do with the Odyssey than it does the actual story of William Glass. Right, but he legit did fight a bear, get left for dead, find his way back, and I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Yeah, Glass yeah, that 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 happened with the rest of it, not so much. But that's the Odyssey too. Um. It's the story of one person against the fates, against the gods, and I will take the time to say this, by the time, because I don't think a lot of people know it, by the time Homer was writing the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Greek gods were to them figurative. 90, 90, 95% if you read contemporary writers from back then. So when Venus came down and whispered in someone's ear, or Aphrodite, when Mars chose to smite Achilles in the heel, that meant the fortunes of war had turned against him. They, they didn't at that point really believe that Athena came down and whispered in your ear. They believed you had a good idea. Right? Now, and, and yes, they still believed, as so many people do, and I'm, to some extent, well, hell, a lot of an extent, one of them, like, don't intentionally piss off the ocean. <laughs> you know, I mean, stuff like that, but... Don't pull the and have the ocean punished. Well, 
<laughs> Who was the Roman emperor that actually had people go down and attack it with swords? I don't remember who the, which Roman emperor that was. I think it was but... Nero. I really do. But there was one that actually got pissed off enough at the ocean or Neptune. I don't remember which to go down and have his men go to the beach and attack it with swords. So it was Caligula. Uh, so it was yeah. it was Caligula. I knew it was one of the insane ones. Um, point being that yes, people were still. We're still superstitious. They still believed in the fates. They still believed in the gods. But they were symbolic and abstract concepts. And I feel like when you really read the Odyssey with that in mind, that it is a story that truly transcends time because it's one man's battle for survival against everything the world can throw at him. It's one of the oldest poems in the Western tradition is called Western Wind. It's it's a Western wind when wilt thou blow the small rain down can rain. Christ that I was in my bed and my love in my arms again. That's the Odyssey. He wants to get home, man, (laughs) against all of And he does. You know, so, well, spiritually... I mean, give me give me a little leeway on my metaphors here this afternoon, but but that's by far up there with with almost anything in Western literature. And I struggled, I really did, with include with not including the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I think actually has more to say about human nature. But. I stacked them up side by side, and the Odyssey to me is a better story. And I'm going to go fiction the rest of the way, so that's what you get for number one for me. Okay. I mean, I think you could probably safely lump that into fiction, too. But Oh, I didn't say I didn't. Okay. <laughs> it's clearly it, it, fiction slash mythology. And, you know, if if you want to get theological and start debating a line between that, that's going to be obviously a different episode. Yeah. So, so what have you got for me to toss out first? Um, let me. I, I really said everything I needed to say about the Odyssey. I guess I, I do think the Epic of Gilgamesh is better. There's actually one of the better things that I have read that I would put in that place, and I can't remember the exact name of it, um, but somewhere around my thousand books I have in this apartment I've got a book of translated Egyptian short stories like from the classic period like Third Kingdom I think and some of those are really really good um, and they I actually are. I've read a bunch of those um, the thing I will say in, in favor of Gilgamesh and the one reason I almost put it in instead of the Odyssey is that the separation of Gilgamesh and Enkidu does a better job than maybe any creation myth except Genesis of of showing the difference between man and the state of nature and man in the state of knowledge. Okay. Um, so my first one and my five are in no particular order, as is my want, but it is Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin by Timothy Snyder. Came out in 2010 and it's European history, and it's Europe, but it's effectively a, not exactly a comparative history, but more of a synthesis history, a history of the Third Reich and of Stalin's regime, and really 
talks about it through that border area that gets rolled over first by the Nazis, then again by the Soviets when they make the drive to Berlin, but also suffered the famines in the 30s, um, the Ukraine specifically, and collectivization and all of that. And it's an incredibly moving history. I mean, and as you can tell by the title, very blood-soaked. Um, but it just takes two, and it's actually one of the things that I will say is a problem that I have with my own discipline as a historian is that is often we historians are too siloed into our perspective histories, and it's not as bad as it used to be, but, it, and that's actually a criticism that was given to the book is the fact that this was re researched across like eight different languages, uh, German, Russian, Ukrainian, and then several other Balkan dialects. And, you know, people are like, oh, well, as a Ukrainian historian or as a German historian, I, I find these minor quibbles with it. Well, yeah, okay, that's cool. He got some of the, the fine details wrong, maybe. But to work in that many different languages and kind of take these separate histories that are often talked about, well, separately and put them together and try and make a grander statement i really enjoy yeah i really have obviously nothing to say on that because i haven't read it however <laughs> um there's one on the there's one on 17th and 18th century russia and bolshevik revolution um i want to say it's like of empire and power or something like that that that's probably not right. Anyway, I'll look it up and drop it in on a later episode. But in the sense of the fact that I do think we lose perspective on history, I would highly recommend to you. I loaned it to Ben. I don't know if he ever read it. Uh, George Orwell's homage to Catalonia as a first person account of the Spanish Civil War. I think far too often we lose those primary sources in in analyzing history. And while obviously slanted, Orwell is at least aware of his slant and does attempt to address it. And even if not, reading those primary sources gives you so much enlightenment, as well as doing like what Ben is talking about with this book, the meta-analysis of, did you say eight? Yeah. Hang on, good lord. I, I, you guys are weird as historians. How many right? How many languages do you need to read to write a book? <laughs> uh, it depends on who you ask. Yeah. Um, well, most impressive, though not on my list literarily, I'll throw in that Nabokov wrote, wrote, wrote Lolita in his fourth language, um, which just always boggled my mind. Well, uh, and that goes to just something as Americans, because I don't know that for Europeans, especially a a continental Europeanist, if that would be that impressive. I mean, the fact that he could write in the fourth one, maybe a little bit, but the fact that he knew that many, probably not. No, but the fact that he could write literarily and effectively and beautifully, despite the horrificness of the story, don't get me wrong, I, in a fourth language, just blows me away. Um, anything else to add? I, I mean, and I do think I will add this because I'm, I've added that to my list of stuff to read now because I think especially in America, 
the the relationship between Germany and Russia in that period is vastly underanalyzed. Yeah, well, I mean, it, I would recommend just about anybody read this. Whenever anybody asks me for a book recommendation, this is actually all five of these are on my short list of books that I would recommend for them. You know, again, uh, the 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 sheer horror of the story because fuck. I mean, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but we'll conservatively say that by the time the story is done, that some somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 million people have been killed. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't think a lot of people realized, you know, that the, the Soviets were standing in back of their infantry with guns. If they turned around, they shot them. That's somewhat overplayed, but it did happen. Soon. Well, it is. Their commissars in town too, well, so yeah. <laughs> Better turn around. <laughs> and he's got uh, 99 left balloons with him, so. Yeah, well, it's I got nothing on that. <laughs> let me, uh, if you're if you're done with that one, I am. Let me move on to my second one, which is the one series I'll bring in that you mentioned earlier that I did not. And that's The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Um, I literally read those every year for over 20 years. I still read them on occasion. They're absolutely brilliantly told. And I like, I'll go further than like, I love fairy tales. And it's a fairy tale with history thrown in. And somehow or another, a linguist managed to mostly stick to story and not get... Now, the songs, I'll admit to it being a lot like the chapters on cetology in Moby Dick. If you're not just really a glutton for punishment, scan the songs real fast and move on. But other than the songs, that those books were not only so formative for me, but really gave me, and something that I feel, you know, I know Tolkien says he didn't write it historically, I, ball, at least to some extent. You look at where he grew up and what it was like prior to the Industrial Revolution, and it was the Shire, and it turned into Saruman's pits of, of smoke and, and filth. You look at, sadly, the racism of how he assigned some of the races. Um, yeah, but, you know, I like T.S. Eliot's poetry, too. It's just a fact of who they were and the time they lived in. Um, Eliot! <laughs> Go phone home and let me finish talking for a second. Right. Uh, but those books were my first real. I won't. That's a lie. They weren't my first real exposure to fantasy. That would have been the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the rest of C.S. Lewis's Seven Narnia books. And Madeline Lingle's uh, A Wrinkle in Time and the rest of that series. But they were my first exposure to non-Christian based, non-young adult fantasy. And they did shape the way I viewed World War II. To some extent, they shaped the way I view the world today. I 
I really do believe, though I'm reluctant usually to admit it, that there is good and evil in the world, that we don't necessarily know what we're doing, but there might be some sort of greater design, and we better go on acting like there is in case. And that's probably the difference deep down between what we've discussed before is Ben's nihilism and my optimism. But those books shaped me and continue to some extent to do so. Plus, who doesn't want a friendship like Gimli and Legolas? I mean, really. Let's just... (laughs) What you got, Ben? Nothing on that. Um, I, I will say that you should come up and view the collection of his his writings and letters and stuff that we have here at the university at some point. I would... If I, it ever opens. Probably like to, but to be honest, I've tried the books of Lost Tales. I've tried the Silmarillion. I don't really care. I, yeah. I, I'm not one of those people... That's enough into it that I need to know, like Star Trek, where this particular droid came from and who fashioned him and why he knows this language. And I sort of said Star Wars. I think I said Star Trek, but you get the idea. Now, there's those people in Star Trek, too. What you're saying is, is you're a filthy casual. If you consider someone who's read the core material like 40 times a casual, then I suppose, yes, I am. Could I stack up against Stephen Colbert? No. Yeah. Do I really need to know the history of the West and the men out of Numenor to appreciate the books? No. (laughs) (laughs) And so, to me, eh, on those, and I have tried, they're just... They're not fiction. They're history. They're linguistic history, and it honestly just does not interest me when it's not about something real. I mean, that's realer than the actual stories, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so my next book is Exterminate All the Brutes, One Man's Odyssey to the Heart of Darkness and the Origins of European Genocide by Sven Sorry, yeah. And what this is, it's actually really short. It's only like 179 pages. But it's this author who's a scholar of some sort, and I don't know enough about his background to speak to that, who retraced the travels of Heart of Darkness. And Oh, wow. So he actually looked at, and I don't remember enough of Joseph Conrad's biography to know if he legit traveled that path, but he actually looked at what Conrad did for Heart of Darkness and explored it. Yeah. That's fantastic. He does that. So it's part travelogue. It's part literary criticism of Heart of Darkness, but then it's also part a um, historical exploration of the, of what he, you know, it's in the, the title, the Year Origins of European Genocide, because he's basically, and he's not the only author who ever makes this case, but it's making the argument that the policies of, towards natives in Africa under colonialism are then brought back to the continent and used in Europe, and that is what causes the genocide. So it's also a extrigation of 
colonial policy and formation of racialized otherings in Africa and all this other stuff. And 179 pages, it's great. There are parts of it that read like a fever dream for when he's traveling through the Sahara and, you know, the horror. The well, horror. not quite that, but yeah, but no, totally. It's, <laughs> but, you know, as something that is neither fish nor fowl, it is really great in what it does. And it is one of, I love reading books like it. Um, there are some others that aren't exactly the same thing, but I have several books around here that are critical theory applied to True Detective or, you know, black metal. And it's the the taking of something that was, and in a lot of ways, Heart of Darkness was a political statement in addition to just being a short story. Um, and then, yes, it, it yeah. was, definitely. And just interrogating that and, and go, going into it. And I, I like things like that. Um, so I really enjoyed this, obviously, since it's in my top five. Yeah, but I and I think there's a lot of merit to taking something that really is a cultural touchstone, uh, at least among lit nerds, and and whether they know it or not, a lot of people because of apocalypse now, because of you know the way it's been converted into the modern age. Like a lot of people know Romeo and Juliet, even if they don't understand that it's a tragic tale about two idiot teenagers who killed themselves over sex, but. <laughs> They go, oh, I want that love, yes, and you want Sid and Nancy and the Joker and Harley Quinn, too, because you're a moron. Uh, <laughs> right. But, but there is a lot of interesting material to me in exploring that, and not just that. Um, totally unrelated, doesn't make my top five, but there's a book called Wide Sargasso Sea that if any of you are familiar with Jane Eyre, where Mr. Rochester has his insane wife locked up in the attic. Uh, this His insane wife, in this case, is not insane. She's simply from another culture and can't live in England. Um, anyway, throw that out there. It's interesting. Jane, uh, she knows so, Sergio. God, I, I don't think that was Jane Eyre. <laughs> Mr. Rochester wow. does to some extent treat her like a rag doll. I will say that. So let's, we're, let's move on before we're way off topic. Um, the next one I'm going to throw out there is the reason that the Sandman series did not make my top five, and that's Watchmen. Uh, Watchmen is particularly if you grew up in the 80s as Ben and I did you grew up under that threat of annihilation you had a barking dog in the background which I'm sure you guys can probably hear and I apologize hold on one second all right um not just that the parallel stories of the pirate genre replacing the superhero genre because there really were superheroes the fact that a couple of the characters were obviously gay and this is the 70s you know the the view that one man potentially well and one godlike man since he got involved could save the world uh 
and the idea maybe more than anything else that we had to have a common enemy. Now that was not that was not Alan Moore's idea. And it was Alan Moore that wrote Watchmen. Please correct me if I'm wrong on that. We'll delete the entire episode and start over because that would be one of the most embarrassing mistakes in my life. Um, it was Alan Moore, right? It was, yeah. <laughs> okay. But it, didn't, it came out in the 80s, not the 70s. Okay, so it came out in the 80s. Um, the, the idea of a common enemy goes back much further than that. You look at invasion of the body snatchers, you know, go back to the thirties and war of the worlds. And that was the radio broadcast for RKO. So I don't know when HG Wells wrote it. The idea has always been there that yes, in the face of a common enemy, humanity would unite, but to see it done that beautifully to have characters as diverse as Rorschach and Dr. Manhattan and Night Owl and Silk Spectre and to see what became of the former heroes as they aged, to see their visions of themselves. I, it's, in my opinion, the greatest piece of graphic art literature that exists. And that's saying a lot if you know how much I like Neil Gaiman. Um, it's simply a true masterpiece of the form. And well before many other people were doing anything remotely like it. Uh, it's absolutely something I can reread with frequency every year. There's so much nuance in the art that you catch something new almost all the time. Uh, it's brilliant. And it it definitely is in my top five books of all time, no question. It's brilliant. I will agree with that. Um, Alan Moore is on the short list and probably the only person on the list of brilliant comic auteurs who transcend the medium, but hate, also I hate the medium. Frank Miller up. I would have given Frank Miller a nod on that until he went insanely libertarian, but whatever. Um, I like Frank Miller. I mean, uh, and, you know, Gaiman isn't necessarily my cup of tea, but he's been very um, critically successful. Oh, dude, read American Gods. That's another one. Uh, I did. My top. It's in the near misses. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. All right. Well, there we go. Uh, sorry, man. Um, hey, it is what it is. I mean, I think that other people, Warren Ellis, I like Warren Ellis's writing quite a bit. So there are other people who are very good. But, um, there is something about Moore's writing that I think elevates him above all those other guys. Um, so, yeah, yeah it, I can't. It's depth and connection, I think, to me. There's just layer on layer on layer on layer of nuance and meaning, and it all somehow ties together. For sure. And that's, I, I mean, I do think Alan Moore's slightly insane. I'm not going to lie, but I'm <laughs> glad that his brilliance has produced some great art. Yeah, I don't even know that Washman's his best work, as good as it is. Um, so... I don't think you can go wrong, whether it's reading his introduction, you know, 
well, uh, to at least American audiences, because I think he was in one of those British comic magazines before that. Um, but the work that he did on Swamp Thing um, before this, or V for Vendetta, or this, oh, or V for Vendetta, Vendetta. Is from Hell is yeah, another hell. one. But, I mean, God, didn't he do the killing joke, too? For, for Batman, pretty sure he did. I, he's he's freaking brilliant, no question. But Watchmen, because of when it came out. Now Swamp Thing was earlier. Swamp Thing was in the seventies. But Watchmen yeah. was ambitious on a level that I don't think anything else had ever tried at that point. And that and V for Vendetta was eighty two, and I'm not positive when Watchmen was eighty six. Okay, but, and this is political, V for Vendetta is a little, and I'm an anarchist, V for Vendetta is, but I'm an anarcho-pacifist, so that may be where my (laughs) issues come to lie with that one. Yeah, uh, Killing Joke is Ellen Moore as well. I thought it was, but I wanted to make sure. Yeah, I mean, just some of the absolute greatest stuff comics has ever done were Ellen Moore. Uh, He just... He's a genius. All right, what you got, brother? Uh, Violent Intermediaries, African Soldiers, Conquest, and the Everyday Colonialism in German East Africa by Michelle Moyd. Um, This book, as you can tell by the title, Violent Intermediaries, is looking at that so often, and if you listen to me just talk about um, exterminate all the brutes, so often when we're talking about colonialism or anything we kind of get into the victims and perpetrators and don't allow for the gray area of victims who are also perpetrators and that's kind of what this is about it's about the Ascari who were a African indigenous armed elite that helped the Germans in Africa in their colonies and it's not just the Ascari. There are other examples of this in other places in Africa, helping other colonial empires. But it's that way to show that... Fine, because the only one you ever hear about in modern history is the Vichy French. Yeah. Um, which is... Well, not that German. Not Nazi German. Oh, okay. We're going back to empirical. Yeah, all right. Yeah. My bad. Um, so, you know... And if you think about it, you think of, uh, in the Americas, you think of Indian scouts and these other things. But it's, you know, we are, whenever the Europeans go into Africa or Americans go into any place, you're interfering in dynamics and systems that you don't know about. And people often see the Europeans... um, I think the best way to explain this is not actually in this book, if you don't know a whole lot about African history, but you think about the conquest of the Aztec. That's exactly where I was going. Yeah, their traditions of of different colored gods coming over the oceans. Yeah. I, well, not even it, so much that, but the, the whole fact that when you think about it, you know, you hear that it was they were conquered by the Spanish. Well, it was like 200 Spanish and two to 4,000 indigenous people who were tired of the Aztec shit and like allied with the conquistadors to overthrow because they wanted to change the power dynamic. I mean, people were tired of getting their hearts ripped out all the time. That's surprising, but yeah, man, you know. <laughs> I'm 
All I know is everybody wants to change the weather. Nobody's tried to sacrifice a virgin to the volcano. Uh, well, I, um, interestingly to me, and especially when you mentioned, because American history much more up my alley, when you mentioned the Indian scouts, uh, that idea of the victim as also the perpetrator, that really is an incredible dynamic. Yeah, because, I mean, you know... Well, because it's hard to fault any individual for attempting to take care of themselves, their livelihood, and their family. And, and yet, at what cost to their culture, at what cost to their ethnicity, to their belief system, that's that's a side of something I really hadn't considered. And even though you said, obviously, colonial Germany, not Nazi Germany— it does echo there too. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and, and for that, I would uh, primo levi. I think is where to go. Start reading on that. Um, but you know, and that that kind of gets to the heart of it a little bit is the fact that when we talk about Native Americans, we often subsume them into Native Americanness and don't speak about them as the incredibly diverse linguistically and culturally. Oh, tribes yeah, that made up Native Americans. You don't bring up the Apache or the Ojibwe or the Navajo or the Pueblo or the Cherokee or the the, the uh, absolutely, and they were all different cultures. Yeah, and often at war with each other. And the, you know, the same thing in Africa. You have these different social and cultural and linguistic groupings, nations that were active and made alliances for their own benefit and were acting to what they thought was best for them. And why, why would I align with my people who uh, I've been at war with for hundreds of years? You know, these guys are bringing us guns and they're willing to take away prisoners from the enemy. What, (laughs) what's the problem? I mean, really you can understand it. And seeing it from that point of view is something that really, I won't say it never crossed my mind, but certainly not as in-depth as what you're describing. That that just made my list as well, I think. Uh, it's one of the best books. I mean, it came out in 2014, but it's one of the best books um, that on African history and on colonial African history that I've read in, in a long time. And I'll tell you this, if we get to the end of your five and you haven't brought up one that you highly recommended to me, I'm going to bring it up because I think it deserves it. Okay. Uh, it's the only nonfiction book that made my list. Um, I'm going to go ahead and throw out one that horrified children if they never read it. Um, Watership Down. As weird as it sounds... It's and it's basically the frickin Odyssey. Uh, so you can, I mean, more of them make it. It's not, a lot of them survive. It's not just Odysseus wandering home, but it's setting out on the quest for a new land. It's and and to be honest, and you'll notice a pattern in, in at least a lot of these that I've mentioned so far, not so much in Watchmen, but definitely in the Odyssey and the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and Watership Down, you'll notice Joseph Campbell's pattern of the hero with a thousand faces. Now, that's obviously culturally been discredited to some extent, but I really do think it still applies to Western culture and Western literature. And, dude, you just... 
it's a book about freaking rabbits that somehow or another I never grow tired of rereading that in rabbit language makes one of the ultimate scenes of confrontation between good and evil acceptable when it says eat shit prince of evil even though because it says it in rabbit language (laughs) there's so much to that book and and yes it's anthropomorphizing but as you've probably been able to tell despite the fact that elves and hobbits and dwarfs and goblins and orcs and trolls and rabbits now and superheroes have been involved Stuff that truly speaks to the human condition, and if you've listened to previous episodes, the absurdity and yet beauty that it can have really, really resonates with me. And there's a lot more animal in us than most people are willing to believe. And so seeing anthropomorphization of animals into human doesn't so much bother me because... And I'm not a geneticist. I'm not a biologist. I couldn't tell you how similar a rabbit's limbic system is to our own, but I'll bet you it's not that freaking different. You know, not really. And the, the differences we've developed, dear God, gradually, it's not fully there till you're 25. We've developed a frontal cortex that allows us to some extent regulate our limbic system. But anyone that doubts ghost in the machine or soul in the in the shell or animal with the face of a man i we're just going to disagree and this book is insanely good if you watched the movie in the 80s as a kid and were absolutely horrified please read the book the book's not that bad <laughs> well the movie was certainly impactful i have to say I don't know that I've actually read the book. If I have, I don't remember it. But I highly recommend it. It's honestly one of the only books of Richard Adams I do recommend. He did a lot of animal stuff. He did Shardick, which was about a bear. He did Further Tales from Watership Down. <laughs> um, I laugh because at first I thought you said Shark Dick. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's that an probably, entirely different kind of story. That probably wouldn't have been about a bear unless... Well, we won't go into gay subculture in this particular episode. There you go. You now have a protagonist for a story. Yes, I do. Mac the Knife and Chuck Dick lurking in the corners of the alleyway. Um, It's a weird choice for someone who... It's not... No, screw it. It's not a weird choice. If you love storytelling, and it's why I mentioned the Louis L'Amour short stories earlier, they are masterpieces of storytelling. Are they beautifully full of rich symbolism? No. They're not. Are are they literary in the sense of you've got to know eight million frickin' references to get them? No. But they're hellaciously good stories. Watership Down is a freaking amazing story, and I highly encourage you to go read it. All right. So, for my penultimate book, I am selecting 
Ned Blackhawks, Violence Over the Land, Indians and Empires in the Early American West. And it's a very interesting book, especially in the intro, because Ned is of Native American ancestry. I don't remember which tribe off the top of my head. And so he talks about this, not just as a historian, but as a tribal person, and how the oral histories of his people and the violence and pain that is transferred from this time of first contact, and actually a little bit before first contact, and how that becomes part of the story overall, the story of survival, um, even generations later. And I'm just going to read a, a, a small excerpt off the back of the book. To, to kind of drive this home. On the distant margins of empire, Great Basin Indians increasingly found themselves engulfed in the chaotic storms of European expansion and responded in ways that refashioned themselves and those around them. Focusing on the Ute, Paiute, and Shoshone Indians, Black Hawk illuminates this history through a lens of violence, excavating the myriad of impacts of colonial expansion. Brutal networks of trade and slavery forged the Spanish borderlands, and the use of violence became for many Indians, a necessary survival strategy, particularly against Mexican independence, where many became raiders and slave traffickers. Throughout such violent processes, these Native communities struggled to adapt to their changing environments, sometimes scoring remarkable political ends while suffering immense reprisals. Wow. And so it, it's, it, it's kind of a butterfly effect type book. And that stuff that is happening beyond your horizon that you don't really quite understand changes your living situation to such a degree that it refashions your society. I like that. I like that idea a lot, and it's new to me. And I hadn't thought about it, but it's true of all of world history. Yeah, Trade trade routes get impacted by natural disasters, whatever it may be. And it may happen, what to you truly is a world away, it does affect you. Yeah. No, and this does a really good job of showing that how, you know, and and if you think about it, I mean, at the, the very easiest thing, I think, for us to understand that concept is when we think about beaver pelts. That became a fashion, so therefore a demand for beaver pelts goes up. So entire industries and men earn their livelihood by going out into the, the frontier and hunting down beaver to the, almost to the point of extinction. Well, while they're doing that, they flood the market so much that they fall out of fashion in what was a season before the selling season, so roughly a year, what the year before was commanding insanely high prices suddenly was not worth, you know, the debt that you had accrued for supplies to go about back on the frontier and set the traps. Right. Um, just if anybody else is interested in that kind of economic devastation, I'll jokingly mention the Beanie Babies, but seriously, look at the tulip market in Holland in the 18th century. Um, the speculation, if you want to talk about a bubble bursting, maybe the best and weirdest example of that in modern history. Well, uh, other than the housing crisis in 2008, which most dude, of no, as far well, because that was global. But as far as one country 
No, seriously, go look up like the tulip bulb speculation market in Holland. And I think it's the 1780s, but it's definitely 18th or early 19th century. Um, it will blow your freaking mind. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I guess we're on my last one, uh, unless you had more to add on that. Um, no, I just um, I did get the opportunity to hear Mr. Dr. Blackhawk speak about it. And fantastic. Really phenomenal. I highly recommend it. As can be expected since it's in my top five. Well, but that's the third out of your four so far that I've added to my Amazon wish list (laughs) as we go. Um, I'm going to give one more honorable mention to a book that is maybe, honestly, one of my favorite fiction books it just doesn't deserve top five in my opinion according to my category and that is um neil stevenson's snow crash one of the now william gibson's neuromancer was probably one of the first true cyberpunk sort of novels snow crash goes way above and beyond it is in my opinion way better And just deserves to be read. Um, There's a Japanese character that is the main character of the book whose name is H-I-R-O, Hero, last name protagonist. Uh, (laughs) If that doesn't hook you, then you should know that it ties into ancient mysticism, the Asherah cult, the Tower of Babel, Early Christianity, the fact that the Pentecost was a virus that was probably both sexually and blood spread that took over Christianity within 50 days of its beginning. Uh, Dude, go read Snow Crash. (laughs) That's really all I've got to say. Uh, If that doesn't hook you, you won't get hooked. So I'll move on to my actual fifth book, which is Milan Kundera's The Unbearable Lightness of Being. And I normally don't order any of these. This is number one. Um, Philosophically, and first off, Milan Kundera was a Czech writer who lived through the Soviet occupation of Czechoslovakia. Um, The book involves that to some extent. I honestly don't want to say too much about it, except that if you are to any extent an existentialist, if to any extent the idea that life either has infinite meaning because we are destined to repeat it or no meaning for the same reason, uh, the idea that since we cannot know the consequences of our actions until hindsight we are either not culpable for them or infinitely culpable for them and who finds no satisfactory answers, but who does find some people who manage to find some meaning and love in their own lives. It's a book you'll enjoy. It absolutely is one of the life changing books of my life. Um, that's fiction at any rate. And that's all I've got on it. I don't want to say too much more than that in case you actually do go read it. It, For me, 
And if if what I've spoken of and the the philosophies that I've discussed and my randomness in the first couple seasons has hooked you at all, go read it. It it truly was life changing for me. When did you read that book? Most recently, last year. First time. Uh, let's go 30. Okay, so... 30. So roughly 10 years ago then. Uh, 14. Okay. <laughs> 12 to 14, yeah. Well, the, the reason that I asked you is I was thinking what a difference 20 years make. So let, I've heard you talk that way about a book before, but it wasn't this book. Which one? Just because... Infinite Jest. Yeah. Um, yes, and Confederacy of Dunces, too, to some extent. However, and I'll tell you probably the biggest difference, my oldest daughter's 12 years old. Okay. I, I, it changes your perspective, obviously. Mm-hmm. More than that, as I have aged... I find that I'm not quite as cynical. And that sounds opposite of what happens to most people, but I think, and if you've listened to our first season and understand some of my upbringing, you understand I was wide-eyed naive for a long time as a kid. And so when that went away, the pendulum swings, and I think it swung too far to the other side. The unbearable lightness of being hits almost dead in the middle. And by the way, I don't think it's infinite jest, which I like, though I've never been that nuts about. I think you may mean gravity's rainbow. Mm, Maybe. Maybe I do mean gravity's rainbow. I just remember you talking, really talking up David Foster Wallace. Yeah, for multiple reasons. Um, I mean, you have to remember, for those who don't know, uh, me and Alan met about the time that Infinite Jest came out in 96. We did. We did. Um, So this would have been in the late 90s, early 2000s that these conversations would have been going on. And I will admit at 18 to 20, not only was I unaware of the level of his misogyny and assholishness, which, yes, does to some extent at least affect my opinion, but that book meant more to me at that time because when you are, at least in my experience, when I was that younger, life was more easily seen as a joke. It was more easily seen as, and I still see it as absurd. Don't get me wrong. I do. And, And that's part of what that is. But the unbearable lightness of being not only revels in the absurdity, but attempts to make something from it. Mm hmm. And I hadn't read it at that point. And I I will tell you probably honestly, had I read it at that point, it would not have meant as much to me. And that's the way our lives are. Right. But but while I do love Infinite Jest and and I do love Confederacy of Dunces, um, which is another absurdist book that's just phenomenal. uh, 
the unbearable lightness of being is is probably if anyone asked me give me one book to read only one that I have to read and that person was an adult at least over the age of about 25 the unbearable lightness of being would be it all right which means it's my last book Yep, unless uh, it's not the one I'm thinking of, and then I'm going to throw one in for you as an honorable mention. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it will be this one, because this is probably, well, there, the, actually, before I talk about this one, there are two other honorable mentions that I want to say, just because I have either bought this, these books and given them out to people um, as gifts or highly recommended them. And the first of those honorable mentions is The Killing Floor by Lee Child. And it is a fiction book. It's the first of his Jack Reacher series, which there are probably 20-something books of by now. Um, they attempted to make two of them into movies, which I was super excited about until Tom Cruise was cast as Reacher, and then I didn't yeah, give a shit. Yeah, because isn't he supposed to be like six foot frickin' five or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not... Five five and with a killer smile. Um, right. Which, to be completely fair, I did see part of them on like a flight, and Cruz did a good job. It was just that the casting just annoyed me. But I also realized that those movies wouldn't have gotten, would not have gotten made if. if well, Tom and had sometimes it surprises you. I mean, I thought Ke Keanu Reeves was a really excellent Constantine, and I never would yeah. have suspected that. Yeah. Um, so I probably ought to go back at some point and watch those just because I did really like the character. Um, but it's not exactly noir, but it has some noir tropes in it. And it is, at least in the early series, they kind of are suspense novels. And Leech Out has a great sense of pacing and ratcheting up tension as to, to make you want to turn the page and keep reading. So I would highly recommend yeah. that. Go ahead. No, I just said true that on the on the pacing and the oh yeah, he's excellent, or she's excellent. I don't really know. It's a he. Um, okay. The other one, and this is actually going to come as kind of a shock, because I don't think that I am spiritually in the same place I was when I was giving these out. But the shack, um, and I don't remember who the author of that is. Hold on. It's on my bookshelf. You keep talking, I'll look it up. Well, I'm, I've got it right here in front of me. So, uh, okay. William P. Young. Yep. And that is, even if you are not Christian, I think that that is a really good spiritual story because of the way that it portrays God in various facets. And if you are going to believe that God exists, I don't think that you can really just have the image of a old dude with a long flowing white beard in the clouds because God God if we buy the concept as Alpha and Omega, so whereas that might be an aspect, it would be so much beyond that. And I think the Shack does a really good job of that and addressing tragedy through faith. And I'll throw out the uh, Kabbalistic idea of, of the Sephirot Nine Sof, which is the great nothingness that is everything. It, If God exists, it's a contradiction we can't possibly understand. Mm -hmm. um, now... Interestingly, and this is also one of my favorites from Cormac McCarthy. I mentioned it last time, but they'll never make a movie of it. Uh, Child of God, mm. which is one of the 
darkest, most disturbing, depressing things you'll ever read. And yet also a child of God, right? Because we all are. So uh, anyway, the counterbalance to your shack. Yeah. But uh, throw throw me out your number five because that neither of those were my honorable mention. Um, well, I that makes me think of one honorable mention. Those of you who paid attention when I said that um, No Time for Old Men was my favorite movie, No Time for Old Men is probably my favorite novel, but it's not my book here. Still not or No there. Country for Old Men. It is The Devil in the White City, Murder, Magic, and Madness at the Fair that Changed America by Eric Larson. That one is fantastic. That one I have actually read at your recommendation, and that one blew me away. Yeah, uh, that is so good. And it, Larson, it is not a fiction novel, but it reads like one. He is just such a good narrator and such a good writer that that is it's one of the easiest books that I've ever read. I mean, as far and as yet, if you go back because I did, it interested me so much. I went back and dug into some of the footnotes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's beyond eye opening. The book itself is eye opening. The, the footnotes and actual research behind it and the fact that, yeah, it's not fiction. It, it Ben's right, absolutely a thousand percent right on that. It, it reads like a story, which for a historian is a very impressive feat. Well, he's not a historian, and that's why he was a newspaper writer. All right. Then. That makes and sense. I will. I I don't care who you can say. I mean, you know, there are giants of literature. This probably doesn't apply to. But I would say, but even like Hemingway, this does apply to him, is that if you want to become a great writer, what makes you a great writer is writing. What makes you a really great writer is having to write and meet deadlines, and that's why journalists are such good writers. It is. Ray Bradbury is a hell of a writer for the same reason. Uh, Radley Balco, who actually wrote a really good book on the militarization of American police, uh, the name of which I can't remember right now. But um, all former reporters, George Orwell, same way. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it definitely, your brain starts to work differently on firm deadlines. Yeah. Um, for those of you who are unaware, what, and part of another thing that makes this so interesting is the way that Larson is able to take two events that seemingly are not connected, but weave a narrative that ties them together, not saying that they are connected by anything other than geography, but that's the funny thing, especially as we live in these megapolises, that you have a thousand different stories going on at the same time, and this does a really good job of blending that together. So it looks at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, which takes place in Chicago, which is the white city in the title, and how they had to transform Chicago, which at the time was a big city, but was kind of in a swamp and not really the glamorous city that we think of now and transforming it into something that would be worthy of holding what is essentially a world's fair. At the same time, one of the most prolific American serial killers, H.H. Holmes is operating in the city and how he takes advantage of not necessarily the fair itself, but the fact that the city is growing and is able to conduct his vile trade at the same time. And they're and not for really those connected. of you who are tinfoil hat lovers, there's a conspiracy. He might have been Jack the Ripper. It's almost guaranteed not true, but right. Yes, it, as important <laughs> conspiracy theories go, 
It's a good one. It's very entertaining. Oh, it's fantastically entertaining. It's just almost certainly wrong. Yeah. Um, but Larson is a great writer. I would recommend some of his other books, too. Um, I've read... Which ones have I read? I've read Thunder... No, I've read Isaac Storm, which is about the hurricane that wiped out Galveston, Texas, and part of Houston, and how the fact that the meteorologist who was working the area had gone through like great personal tragedy and might have played a role in him not guessing the storm other than the fact that meteorology really sucked back then and let's see was it dead wake i think it was dead wake that i read which is about the lusitania as well but i mean just a fantastic writer and the honorable mention and we're going to wrap up here because we've gone a little longer than our standard episode but the honorable mention i'm going to throw in for ben is is a book that truly changed my view of a great deal of America ever since post-Civil War era, and that book is named Worse Than Slavery. Um, it's about the Parchment Prison in Louisiana, and I, I, I really still don't have words. Yeah, David Oshinsky. Thank, the author. You, thank yeah. you, because the author wouldn't come to me. I... I made a comment once on a public forum, and I'm not afraid to repeat it here, is that we, America never eliminated, eliminated lynching. They just pinned on a badge and called it justice. Yeah. Um, I'm not afraid to stand by that. Now, obviously, good apples, bad apples, good cops, bad cops. I'm not denying that there are individuals. But reading that book and realizing that overall – yeah, some of the chain gang early prison stuff in the Jim Crow era was almost, if not truly, worse than slavery. Yeah. Uh, was so mind-blowing to me. And, and if you get a chance, if that sort of stuff interests you, go look up the Louisiana literacy test required to vote mm -hmm. uh, during the Jim Crow era, in which... There really was no way to pass it unless the examiner just wanted you to. Uh, you know, it, the poll taxes, the uh, but all of that is minor compared to, and this isn't necessarily the absolute beginning of the school-to-prison pipeline, but it's a better illustration than any I have ever read, and it was mind-altering for me. So I'd... One that Ben's recommended to me that truly changed me. I would throw out Worse Than Slavery, The Parchment Prison Project, yeah. The other one that I would recommend, and that is a great book. I hadn't even thought of that one, but that, that is also on the short list of books that I often tell people to read. Um, read that one in some order and then follow it up either before or after. Chronologically, it should come before, but the half that's never been told which I don't remember the author of off the top of my head, I should, but which talks about just how ingrained and important the slave trade and slavery as an institution was to the United States before the Civil War. 
And yeah. just on the off chance you enjoy us, we uh, have a friend, I'll let Ben recommend him, who's done some significant work on the Lost Cause narrative uh, that you might want to go listen to. He actually um, doesn't do that much work on it, but as a historian and a southerner, he has spoke to it. But it's Trey Weiscarver of the Outlaw History Podcast, um, which you can find on any place that you listen to this. And he he's phenomenal on that. Well, he's phenomenal in a lot of ways, but he's super yeah, he's... phenomenal on that topic. Um, and, you know, we're not going to get into all that here because that'd be an entire another podcast and other people have done it better. But just read anything from any of the representatives, the governors that it if you want to say it was about states' rights, fine, but it was about states' rights to keep their slaves. Yeah, states' rights to what? Uh, people, and that's what it was about. Right. Well, I mean, Mississippi alone said that they estimated that they would lose $4 billion. And this is in 1860, mind you, that they would lose $4 billion if the slave, if the slave trade was outlawed. And you compare that to today's number, it's somewhere around $156 billion. I don't have the calculator in front of me, but I did it a few weeks ago. I may be wrong by 20 or 30 billion in either direction. I mean, but, what is 20 or 30 billion amongst friends? Among 115 or 20 or whatever, not freaking much, right? Right. Um, and there is an argument to be made, I will say, and not in support of anything Southern. Uh, I grew up with that. I'm over it. I've, I've educated myself. But there is an argument to be made, in my opinion, that the Civil War was absolutely unavoidable simply because of the economic disparities that had been created between the divided North and South. That's why I would recommend that you read that book, because it'll open your eyes about some of those economic disparities. And they're not exactly what you think they are. And that's awesome. Uh, throw throw the name out one more time and uh, the half has never been you... told by Jean Baptiste, I think. And I will double check. Dude, that. Jean Baptiste, the former slave? No. Okay. Well, I'm just curious. I mean, he might uh, be related. Edward Baptiste. Edward Baptiste. Okay, because Jean Baptiste wasn't he the one that fostered the uh, revolution in Haiti? Um, Colbert, Jean Baptiste Colbert is different, but Jean Baptiste, I, I don't remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I mean, it totally matters, but my brain is gone. <laughs> so that's you ready for me to wrap it up, Ben? Yeah. Um, what are we doing next time? And what? Well, hell, you threw books at me out of the blue. Why don't I get uh -huh. to do the same? Yeah, exactly. Um, next time we are going to be doing top five live entertainers. No, 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 no. That's too hard. Top five comedy specials. Okay. So next time you will be getting our top five comedy specials. Um, we may do live entertainers, but that's going to be down the road for me a ways because I've got a lot of thinking to do on that topic. <laughs> uh, top five comedy specials. So please tune in. As always, 
we'll go all over the place. Uh, this is and always has been dangerously eclectic. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, L, Eclectic Heretic, on the Twitter, and this has been dangerously opposite me. We wish you a great week, much health, stay safe, wash hands, and, you know, avoid the Rona, man. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Adios.